0: Ain't no punchlines when fizz fly boom, boom, boom. And every rogue will have his say boom, boom, boom. Ain't no punch lines when fizz fly And they fly like kites on string Cause every rogue has come to play Yeah, every rogue has come to play I know, 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 Yeah, you better keep that tone in mind, Cause ain't no punchlines when this fly. Hello, hello, hello. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things The Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, the mighty monologuing Motormouth, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through 41 big pages of THE Amazing Spider-Man's first ever annual. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com hspp and the Key Keeper or High Council tiers where you gain access every week to a bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering a comic book pool from High Society's extensive vault collection chosen by you, the listeners. This week, we're covering kick-ass number two. I don't think laid up in a hospital on life support is what Dave Liszewski thought would happen when he signed up to be a superhero, but the best laid plans, am I right? That's later. Right now, GC, trumpets please. We're gonna need a spotlight pop for our newest patron of the High Society High Council. All rise, for the big guy, True Blue Lou. Sometimes it really is in the name. Welcome aboard the crazy train, strap in Lou. Tea will be served shortly, maybe with some Danish pastries. Shout out to the right minders, the big three, the key keepers, and the high council. To you, as always, I say, I see you and I thank you for your support. And to you all, I say, what happens when you mix six villains, six powers, six egos, and six locations with two damsels in distress and one? Peter Parker well we're about to find out we've got Spider-Man versus the sinister six I've got no way to sell enough said we've got me we've got you we've got no further ado we've got the amazing spider-man annual number one the sinister six let's get into it me and my best friend Pete old adventures new critiques he spins webs I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend, P. The credits on this behemoth, we've got smiling Stan Lee writing, and it was drawn by none other than swinging Steve Ditko, with letters by sparkling Sam Rosen. And you know when we've got Triple S, Stan, Steve, Sam, all in one place, we're about to have all sorts of comics goodness, so I'm not wasting any time the cover of this one, we've got THE Amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman at the top of the page beneath a goldenrod caption box with red lettering, 72 BIG PAGES. That's sitting next to a red caption box with goldenrod lettering, ANNUAL. THE Amazing is written in Spidey costume blue and Spider-Man is written in Spidey costume blue, red and a forest green, the colors alternating. We get the spider's webs beneath this as usual and it's all sitting on a white negative space. And speaking of negative spaces, we find Spider-Man in the thick of it. His back to us three quarters, he's hanging from a strand of webbing beneath the eye in his name by his left hand and resting his bent left foot on a larger strand of webbing that extends and gets thinner until it ends on the heel of his right foot. Both arms are wide and a cross hatching beneath his arm for web wings are both chefs kiss perfect. His head is in profile with his huge buggy right eye narrowed, and he's staring at what I'm sure would make a kid of sterner stuff lose his lunch. Spidey's six most dangerous villains are all racing towards him, each showcasing their signature style. To stage right of Spidey's spread legs, Dome, Mysterio, in his green suit, fishbow helmet and suede purple cape, has his right hand raised, three quarters of his body wrapped in his signature smoke. Directly to Spidey's stage left, the cat's paw, Craven, the hunter. The mane on his lion's head vest flowing out behind him is sprinting towards the Webhead. To his left, one step behind him, the one man hands team, 008 himself, Dr. Octopus. His upper metallic arms dancing above his head, while his lower left metallic arm is rising from behind. And to his left, the smooth criminal, the Sandman. He's got his signature wave spinning on his head, his green three-quarter length shirt that stops at his forearms. Where his forearms stop, his hands are both sand, and so is the leg we can see hidden behind the caption box. We'll come back to that box, but the players ain't done. Sandman is one of two men here with a smile on his face. The other. Behind the Sandman is a building drawn in the sky blue color we've come to expect for buildings on an ASM cover. On a short ledge of this building, we get the electric engine of Ego, Electro. Electro. His smile almost a sneer in his green and yellow costume. The electric star-shaped mask on his face with a high point. His left arm raised above his head. He is hurling a lightning bolt at the amazing Spider-Man with his right. And finally, soaring at Electro's height, His arms wide and lime green wings, a tuft of feathers wrapping his neck, his head bald, a scowl on his face. None other than Lincoln O himself, the Vulture. Anyone else? A partridge in a pear tree probably, but I'm sure it got out of here when it saw these ropes coming. In front of the Sandman, I told you we'd be back to it, we get a caption box. Featuring Spidey's biggest, longest, greatest battle as he attacks the Sinister Six with a galaxy of the most gold-armed guest stars that you can shake a web at. I want to see if they're right, because I could shake a lot of web on this side. Let's get into it. Where are you? Here. This section is usually reserved for the weekly bonus episode, but a lot's happened since Pete first burst onto the scene on August 10th, 1962, so I say we recap the first 15 issues in the mightiest of Motormouth's manner. Give me 60 seconds on the clock. In Amazing Fantasy 15, introverted bookworm Peter Parker, nephew to doting Aunt May and Uncle Ben Parker, is picked on by his peers, mainly Liz Allen and Flash Thompson, and made fun of constantly for his genius before he attends a science exhibit where he is bitten by a radioactive spider. Pete gains the strength, speed, agility, and spider sense, one part precognition, one part radar, of a spider proportionate to his size. Pete, wearing his Aunt May's sheer stockings to cover his face, don't worry, they were new, accepts a challenge by a wrestler to survive three minutes in the ring with the bulked up guy, and does, being discovered by a TV agent in the process who turns Pete into the sensation of the nation. Pete, darning a red and blue suit and mask and designing devices he calls web shooters, takes the entertainment world by storm one day after a show at a studio pete sees a man being chased by a police officer but decides he's not going to get involved thinking that outside of his aunt and uncle the world can go hang for the way it's treated him some time passes and pete comes home from a gig one night to find out to his horror that his uncle ben was murdered by a mugger pete goes after the mugger as spider-man and cornering him in a warehouse Realizes that the mugging murderer is none other than the thief he let escape in the police station. Now saddled with a guilt he can never live down, he realizes a lesson we all know these days. With great power comes great responsibility. And boy does the kid get responsible. In issue one, he saves the life of the son of his greatest antagonist, Jay Jonah Jameson, hunts for a job with the Fantastic Four to help his arm with bills, and takes on super spy with style to match the chameleon. He survives a murder attempt by the vulture, and saves the planet from the tinkerer and aliens in issue two, while becoming a freelance photographer for J. Jonah Jameson's Daily Bugle newspaper. In issue three, he takes an L and bounces back against 008 himself. Dr. Octopus in a battle for the ages. In 4, he takes on the Sandman but has to split after his mask does, prompting a rematch of Pete's High School, Midtown High. 5, Spidey goes on his first rescue mission when he battles the Livarian Lion, Doctor Doom, to save the life of Spider Flash Thompson, the Brandex Kid himself. In 6, Spidey flies south and goes hand to hand with the dashing doctor turned reptilian overlord, The Lizard. 7, in my first Spidey comic ever read and first bonus episode here on me and my friend Pete, the vulture escapes prison and gets Two rematches, one of which takes place in the offices of the Daily Bugle, and we realize J. Jonah Jameson's secretary, Betty, the damsel, never in distress, Brent is filling the kid from Forest Hills, Queens. In issue 8, we get two stories and three fights as Pete goes one-on-one with the cock of the walk Flash Thompson and Spidey takes on the living brain in the first story before going one-on-one with Johnny the Human Torch in a battle that forces us to put some respect on the Long Island Fireball's name, and he ain't gonna say it no more. 9. Pete may need surgery, Pete and Betty bond over the hardship of this, and Max Dillon bursts onto the scene as Electro with a prison break plan in reverse. 10 we get the enforcers led by the big man you know the ox montana and none other than just the man all hands the fanciest of dan's fancy dan who put on a clinic in organized crime forcing betty brent to race off to the city of brotherly love but not before Pete donates blood to aunt may to help her recover from her illness in 11, Pete follows his girl Friday to Philadelphia and Spidey does battle with the one man hand team, Dr. Octopus, on the Schuylkill River. 12, Dr. Octopus gets his revenge and unmasks the webhead, but the revelation doesn't stick and his victory doesn't last long. In 13, Spidey thinks he's going mad. Mysterio makes his move and both deserve Academy Awards at the end. In 14, Spidey goes Hollywood, then New Mexican, then one-on-four with the Enforcers and the Green Goblin before going one-on-one with the World's Strongest. The Incredible Hulk. And finally, 15 sees Spidey playing the most dangerous game of all against the world's greatest hunter, the one man walking cat's paw, Craven the Hunter. And that's where we are. But where are we going? Page one. Page one opens with the sign of the spider with Spidey's name written inside, arched along the image's border, as usual. It's sitting on a goldenrod negative space, so you know actions finna abound in this one. Next to the logo, we get the title of this issue, The Sinister Six, in a font that reminds me of those 50s horror mags that makes it look like the letters are melting. We have three panels growing in size from the left of the page to the right. In the first panel, we get the damsel, never in distress, Betty Brant, her brown Friday. hair in a bob, wearing what looks Girl like pink Friday. cashmere, standing next to Sparker, Parker, Friday. wearing a green hat with yellow baby's breath flowers on it and a matching jacket. Both ladies are wearing a look of worry. Betty's hands are racing towards her chin, and is looking over her shoulder with her right hand on her cheek. The white ticker tape caption box above her head reads, Can Spider-Man save the two people he loves most in the whole world from the deadly Sinister Six? Next, on a red tile floor, we get the Sinister Six. From our left to right, the Sandman, only human from the waist up, his torso on the floor, his namesake around him, Kraven, the Hunter, Mr. General. Sky Blue Gas around him, as usual, Dr. Octopus, a much more fit and trim doctor, I might add, with his mechanical arms and purple jumpsuit. Electro! Sparks flying from his bald left fist. And the Vulture! His arms raised as he lands to round out the crew with Dr. Octopus to step in front of them. He's clearly the brains of this outfit. A white arrow caption box points at the group. In order to rescue Betty Brannon, Aunt May, Spidey must find a way to defeat the undefeatable Sinister Six. And finally, In the largest panel on the page, standing in front of a blue wall with a brown picture frame, his hair tousled, his right hand near his chin, shock on his face, we see the Goldenrod Kid, Peter Parker, standing topless. In his right hand is his Spidey shirt. He has on his Spider-Man pants, boots, and utility belt with the sign of the spider at its center and the camera, built in left of center. On the floor at his feet are his Spider-Man mask and gloves. Beneath his feet, we get an arrow caption box pointing towards page two. It's taken a year to produce this double-length epic, so let's not waste another minute. Away we go. In state prison, a team of specialists have finally found a way to remove the four extra mechanical arms which had become attached to Dr. Octopus after a freak accident. We know this was Amazing Spider-Man number three, the origin story of Dr. Octopus. That's episode four here on Me and My Friend Pete, We Didn't Start the Fire. And we're inside of a cell with Otto Octavius in green prison pants standing in front of a prison guard in SJB uniform. odd has been hitting the yard hard because he's sliding on a matching green button up and he's clearly got a four pack working, which back in the 60s was a big deal. He's starting to look as fit as the old webhead himself. But there is something different about 008 now. For the first time in Amazing Spider-Man, his mechanical arms aren't attached to his body. They're being held by a prison guard's hand stage right as the guard gloats off panel that without them, Otto Octavius is just prisoner number 4756689. He's wrong. Imagine trying to fit a person, a whole universe into seven digits, but you know guards are in a far shape from police officers so they don't see anyone not wearing a badge as people. Ock agrees with me, but for different reasons. He thinks that the guard doesn't know that even though he's been separated from his arms, he can still control them from a distance with just a thought. And he does just that an hour later gripping the iron bars of his cell with his left hand and pressing his right to his forehead like a mentalist, his eyes, as always, behind his Kanye shades. He thinks, If my artificial arms are sent to another prison, they will be too far from my thought control. That means I must get them back. Now! And plan my escape right away while I still have the power. He goes on to think, Return to your master. Return to your master. As his four metal arms burst out of the red locker they're being held in through the corridors of the prison and come to a stop in front of Octavius' cell. Octavius, knowing he has to act fast, attaches his arms to himself once more. And now, 008 again, breaks out of the prison easily before the guards can stop him. The next day, J. Jonah Jameson, publisher of the influential Daily Bugle, gets an unexpected visitor. Of course Spidey is upside down outside of J.J.'s corner office. It must be Saturday because the miserable magnate isn't wearing a tie. He's got his sleeves rolled up, a cigar in his mouth, and tan pants. Spider-Man webs the newspaper from J.J.'s hands, saying he stopped by to read the editorials because they're funnier than the comic strips. Call J.J.'s news comical! As J.J., whipping his head around, snaps at the sight of the wall crawler. Spider-Man, you excellent buffoon! Haven't the police caught up with you yet? only that blasted Peter Parker was here to snap some photos of him. Spidey, perched on his webbing from the billboard lamp across the street from the Daily Bugle in the next panel, reads the headline of the paper as cars zip past on the street below. Wow, well, wow! Well. So Doc Ock has escaped from prison again. I sure hope he goes into hiding for the next hundred years or so. I'd sure hate to have to tackle him again. Page three opens with Spidey blown from his webline by a mighty gust that sends his newspaper flying as he wonders if a hurricane has just passed by. But it wasn't a hurricane. Beneath our hero, we see another hero. The first of many, to be sure. His silver-winged helmet on his head, covering his golden curls. His fiery red cape billowing out behind him. The legendary hammer Mjolnir, clutched in his right hand, propelling him through the midday sky. Floor races beneath Spidey, who, agility on best ever, loops the light post in the next panel. Spidey says Goldilocks must be on his way to an Avengers meeting, or late for a barber. Right now, in the current run of Thor, he's on a quest with Odin to find out what's happened to his weapon of choice, Mjolnir. The story is called God of Hammers, and it's a cosmos spanning adventure with writing by Donny Cates and art by Nick Klein and Matt Wilson. So far, it's been beautiful to look at, beautiful to read. I recommend. Back to. Meanwhile, in another part of the city, a very strange, ominous meeting is about to begin. In a red back chair with his legs crossed and a smirk on his face, Electro is firing bolts from the tips of his fingers where they converge in front of him. Sitting on the arm of the chair comfortably, his mechanical arms doing their own thing as always, is Dr. Octopus, while behind him, Craven the Hunter stands. Electro says Electro doesn't like to be kept waiting, so he's been doing this villainy business long enough to where he's referring to himself in a third person now. Octopus says be patient because he's not going to start until everyone arrives, when the door bursts open and Mysterio, dramatic as ever, enters the room in a shroud of smoke with his right arm raised. Mysterio doesn't say a word, just strolls across the room and stands behind Craven as Octopus says they're waiting for two more people. Electro, never able to see the forest for the trees, jumps from his chair in the next panel, and his right fist, Bald, says, Look, if none of us was able to defeat Spider-Man before, what makes you think we can do it now? Craven chimes in, saying they all lost individually. There's no way they'll all lose together. Doc Opp, lighting a cigarette, says Craven is right, and he's devised a foolproof plan. I mean... Just two of them would give Spidey more arachnocardio than he could handle. And I've got four men now and two more on the way. Foolproof sounds like an understatement. But let us leave the gathering of supervillains for a moment. The next day, on a street in Forest Hills, Peter Parker, spider seems to detect something frightening about a passing stranger. And the golden Ron kid in his SJB blazer, golden vest and red tie, is looking over his shoulder at a white man whose face is in shadow, wearing a brown fedora, tan jacket, and brown pants. Pete's in half-man, half-amazing Pete Rock mode as his spider-sense too. He thinks he should follow this guy to figure out why his spidey sense is buzzing so hard when an annoying, familiar voice calls out to him. Parker, I've been looking for you. You're not gonna get away from me this time. And Flash, fashion on, eh, pretty good. We're not haters on this side. Thompson, in a green sweater and tan pants, Speed walks towards Pete, flanked by Bowtie Kid from last issue in a gray suit and pink bow tie, wearing a smirk on his lips. If he's smirking, he's probably put a battery in Flash's back. And he has. Flash is screaming. I saw you walking home from school with Liz yesterday. In the final panel, bow tie and a kid in yellow egging him on, Flash assumes the Fighting Irish boxing stance and gets right to business. I'm through warning you to keep away from my girl now, puny Parker. It's time you learned a lesson you'll understand. Liz doesn't belong to anyone Allen, keeps showing through her actions. She's not tied down to Flash, but Flash ain't getting it. Pete, not even bothering to raise his hands because he knows the Brandex kid can't touch him, calls Flash a bird brain and a meathead and says the only lesson Flash could teach is one of stupidity before telling the cock of the walk to get lost. Flash throws a wicked straight punch screaming, you asked for it, to open page four, and he leaned into it. But Pete gets slow with his best ever agility, and we get a great panel of him dodging with a look of annoyance on his face. Unbothered. Well slightly annoyed. And because Pete has the most successful Marvel comic book of all time, he's responsible for plugging all the other great characters Marvel puts out there. So of course, after Thor a page ago, we get the astral form of Doctor Strange in black and white appearing in this panel. The Sorcerer Supreme himself! The collar of his cape higher than his head, his mustache pointed at the corners, his expression stern, he spots Flash throwing the punch and Pete dodging. Strange holds up a hand, saying, Have you lads nothing better to do than engage in common street brawls? Fighting is the last result of the ignorant. Pete springs to his feet and dashes ah. off on the next panel as Flash, all the way committed to his punch, screams, Look out, mister! I can't stop my punching time! Yeah! I, I, I went right through him! And he punches through Dr. Strange. Strange says, don't worry, that Flash only punched through his ectoplasmic spirit form. The next panel, we get a crowd reaction shot. The kid in the yellow shirt has his face covered in shock. A redhead has his mouth open. He can't believe it. And the Brandex kid, Flash Thompson, is hugging himself saying that he can't believe the guy is real. That he thought he was just some phony magazine hero. And Bowtie, jerking his thumb over his shoulder as Strange's cloak translucent back, says there's nothing phony about the Sorcerer Supreme. That it was Doctor Strange in a not-so-flesh. Meanwhile... Peter Parker has taken advantage of the sudden interruption to make one of the most dramatic changes in all of adventure Dumb. And Spidey gets suited and booted in an alley, leaving his SJB blazer in a fruit crate so he can follow the man in the brown fedora. And now I'm thinking Pete may not always smell the freshest. I don't imagine an alley in the 60s smells better than one today. In the next panel, Spidey is watching the man from above on a sheer wall, and the man is standing with his hands in his pockets above a sewer grate. Spidey's thinking, the arm of villainy which he exudes is almost too strong to bear. Whoever he is, he represents a grave danger. I better tackle him now. He leaps towards the man in the next panel shouting, hold it, but the man is gone, vanished out of his clothes that stand empty on their own a moment. That's science, that's inertia. In the final panel, we get a great shot of none other than Flint, two-gun Marco himself, AKA the Sandman, in the tunnels beneath Manhattan. He was in the jacket and pants above ground. That's why Spidey's spider sense was going off. Sandman, reconstituting his body in the tunnel, thinks, That was close. But the Sandman can't stop to fight Spider-Man now. I'm late for the urgent meeting with Dr. Octopus called. Octopus has the Sandman involved. Spidey descends into the sewers upside down on a web line to open page five, using his Spidey sense as a guide, but thinks the guy has too much of a head start, so Spidey doesn't know which way to go. He calls off his search and grabbing his bundle of clothes from the alley, Webb swings home. When he gets there, next panel, he notices a light on in the attic and wonders what Aunt May will be doing there. Eavesdropping as is his way, he lands on his house and peers into the attic in the next panel and spots May, who's sitting on a bench in a green full-length dress in front of a purple and brown chest. The chest is open and we get a glimpse of a smoking pipe, a picture in a frame, and other assorted items. May has a purple framed picture in her right hand and a white handkerchief to her eyes on her left. She's hunched over and clearly crying. Spidey thinks, I hate to see you weep this way. I guess you never really got over Uncle Ben's death at the hands of that burglar months ago. Turning from the window with a heavy heart, Spider-Man walks aimlessly along the rooftops, lost in his own gloomy thoughts. And Spidey, his shoulders hunched, his head down, walks along the ledge of a building, high above the city. In the two years since Spidey's been bitten by the spider, two years? Yeah, that was August 10th, 62. We're in October, 64. Back to. In the two years Spidey's been bitten by the spider, we haven't seen him think about Uncle Ben on page since. But now, after seeing May grieving, Pete laments his father figure's loss. Sitting on a chimney stack with his head down, he thinks of his uncle, and we get a great memory caption box of Ben, May, and Pete in a museum together. It's a big deal in the 1960s to step out into a museum, so we get all three dressed to the nines. May in green with a Sunday hat, Pete in his SJB blazer, a red tie and orange vest, and Ben... Where you think the kid got the style flair from, Parker? Ben's in a three-piece royal purple suit with a checkered brown tie. He has his hand on Pete's shoulder and he's pointing to an animal bus with a smile, giving Pete the signs as May looks on with them. All three are smiling. With this image in his mind, Spider-Man thinks, He was always so good to me. Such a real pal. We went everywhere. He loved me like his own son. He wanted me to be someone. In the final panel, we get another flashback to that moment that will live forever. From the first infinity page in Spidey Comics history, page 8 of Amazing Fantasy number 15, Spidey, his street clothes draped over his forearm, stands idly by as a sandy-haired man races past him, a police officer on his tail, screaming for somebody to stop the guy. Spidey doesn't. Spidey thinks, Why should I butt in? On page 6, Spidey, right hand covering his face, his left (laughs) clenched into a fist, breaks down, sobbing as his memory shows a guy in a green cap Brown Jacket, holding a pistol in beats home. If only I had known, if I could have somehow guessed that the very man whom I allowed to pass me would be the burglar who was later to murder Uncle Ben. Why hadn't I stopped him? Why? Why? He stands up from the chimney and on the edge of the ledge in the next panel, thinks that no matter what he does, he'll never live that moment down. He thinks, Sometimes, I hate my Spider-Man powers. Sometimes, I wish I were just like any normal teenager. If only it had never happened. And Cosmic and Comic Timing ask, oh yeah, before Spidey, the most sure-footed superhero of all time, trips from the ledge of the building in the next panel. In Free Fall, with his back to the earth, Spidey can't believe it. It's impossible. It's never happened before. I can't trip. I can't. But maybe it was a fluke, and Spidey, pivoting in the air so that he's facing the ground, grabs a flagpole as he races towards the ground, screaming he was just careless, because he was lost in thought. So Spidey's gonna grab this flagpole, give it a little loop the loop and be back on top. Agility on best effort. Nope, what do you mean, nope? what I said. In the next panel, Spidey has only managed to grab the flagpole and hang on for dear life as it shakes from his weight. He screams, oh no, I can hardly hold on to the flagpole. What happened to my strength, to my agility? The camera zooms out and Spidey continues, saying he never thought it could happen, but without warning, he's lost his spider powers. In the final panel, the camera zooms out once more and Spidey, still dangling from the flagpole, says, Perhaps it's all for the best. Now I can never hurt anyone again. I won't have a secret I must always protect. I'll be able to live a normal life. So Spidey's willing to give it all up, but he's not being fair to himself. We all heard the way here section. We know the good he's done in the world. So if he has to give it up, fine. But he shouldn't believe he's done no good. Either way, he wonders how he's going to get down from this flagpole. Paid seven opens to none other than Marvel's first family, the Fantastic Four, flying past the flagpole in their Fantastic Car. Sue, Johnny, and Ben are all sitting in their personal cockpits, but Rita's standing, his torso and arms stretched outside of his control panel. Johnny spots Spidey first and calls Spidey swell-headed, saying he's showing off for the public as usual. This from the Human Torch, the kid who can't wait to turn Long Island house parties into discos with his powers. If you wanna know what I'm talking about, check out episode eight of Me and My Friend Pete. That's two infinities, written as 88, get it? Back to. So Johnny calls Spidey a show-off, thinks that the town's crawling with superheroes now, and soon he'll need a program to know who's who. Two thousand people will always recognize the ever-loving, blue-eyed, great one, so he doesn't need to worry. And Reed, staring at Spidey, says they better just leave the kid alone because he's a real, lone wolf. So Spidey isn't gonna be saved by the first family. He shimmies toward the base of the flagpole in the next panel and manages to grab onto the building and pull himself up, saying they must have thought he was clowning as usual. He makes it onto the ledge and his back pressed against the sheer wall of the building. On his knees, his hands pressed against the building, he tells himself not to look down and to keep pushing forward. And that's just a good life lesson right there in and of itself. Don't look down. Keep pushing forward. Finally, after a suspenseful few minutes, the costumed teenager reaches an open window and then, and I think for the first time ever in a Spidey comic, we see the golden liability using the stairs. My, how the mighty have fallen. He bolts towards the exit door at the bottom of the landing and out onto the street. In the next panel, Spidey is struggling to get back home. He's on his knees, a finger pressed to his lips to keep the gray dog staring at him quiet. Behind a fence, where two men stand in front of it, talking casually. Spidey's thinking, but I mustn't be seen. Without my spider powers, it would be too easy for someone to trap me and succeed in unmasking me. The caption box in the next panel tells us it took Spider-Man an hour to get home, a journey normally less than three minutes for the old webhead. He gets changed, and in his goldenrod kid outfit, greets Aunt May, who's wearing her apron and pulling a pie from the oven. She tells Pete he looks pale, and Pete says it may be because he's studying too hard. May tells Pete to go lay down and that she'll bring his dinner up to him when it's ready. Pete thanks her and heads up the staircase in the next panel thinking, After today, I'll never have to keep the truth from her again. No more deception as Spider-Man. And in the final panel, Pete takes the eternal pose of the angsty teenager, laying on his bed, his arms behind his head, beneath his pillow, one leg bent over the side, the other straight. Pete thinks he always wanted his powers gone and wonders what he's going to do now that they are. So Pete all those jokes over the last two years about not wanting the power were actually his truth and quips. He really has been out here helping people because he can and not for the thrill as he once wondered. Selflessness because he had great power, and you already know the rest. We turn the page and we're on the Infinity, the Infinity page. page. Page 8. Just in time to witness the Vulture burst onto the scene in Dr. Octopus's hideout, rounding out the assemblage of villains, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Vulture circled overhead and waited to make sure he was the last person to arrive. Lincoln old Vulture is second to none in his mind. Octopus says the meeting can begin immediately, and that this moment will be a turning point in all their careers. But to be fair, Octopus thought his Philly job would be a turning point too. That's issue number 11 of ASM, literally titled Turning Point in the Comics, You can hear that story here in episode 11, What If Bennett was definitely in it. Back to In the next panel, everybody chimes in. Skip the dramatic speeches, Octopus. Just state the plan. Whatever the plan is, Sandman is for it. I can't wait to pay Spider-Man back. We all have a score to settle with the elusive Spider-Man. He defeated me twice. This will be different. The third victory will be mine. You can't beat him with words. Let's band together and attack him. Now! But Electro knows an outright attack won't guarantee that Spidey will stay and fight, as the villains move their conversation to a red table. So we get some red table talk. Shout out to Jada Pinkett Smith. Electro says even if they all attack Spidey together, the webhead is too fast and will find a way to escape. Mysterio says maybe you're right, but there has to be a way to get him to fight. Dr. Octopus, I can't get over how jacked this man has become. Hidden awaits for revenge. He holds up his right fist, places his left hand on the table, and pounds the tabletop with L2 brief reminder here on me and my friend Pete we call the metal arms just below Ox real arms the ones the arms below those the twos and we break them down into left and right so L2 is the lower metallic arm on the left side of his body back to a pounds the table with L2 saying of course there's a way to beat him that's why double 8 called the meeting he tells them all to be quiet so he can explain but there are too many egos in the room for that Vulture says they should all attack at once Proving he hasn't been listening to anyone in the room because Mysterio already said that and Electro already said why that wouldn't work. Lincoln O ain't here to listen. Sandman says he doesn't need help from these guys. That he already knows all Spidey's tricks and he can beat the webhead alone. Before Craven says he doesn't hunt in packs and he'll get his victory solo. Vulture talks since to open the next panel. But he's beat all of you in the past. Why take needless chances? He's beaten all of them, huh Vulture? All of them? He beat you too, sir. Twice, and 008 stops all the talk, saying he has a plan they're gonna love. They're gonna love his plan. In the final panel, we see a metallic arm holding a circular blue box. And each man, reaching inside, pulls out a sheet of paper as Doc Ock exclaims, We will each draw a number, and we will fight him one at a time in the order of the drawing. I have worked out a detailed scheme which will force him to battle us. Now draw. Octopus, his metallic arms whipping around him in excitement to open page 9, continues. On each of your cards, I have written a location. It is the place where you will battle our common enemy, and each location is best suited for your particular talents. I have left nothing to chance, as you shall see. He wraps his monologue in the last panel with all five men looking on, Sandman and Craven wearing small smiles. Spider-Man will have no choice. He will have to fight one after another, and each one of us will weaken him a little bit more, so his chances will grow slimmer after each battle. Mysterio says if he's first, there won't be a second battle. While Vulture says, Enough talk. Let's look at the cards. Things are about to get too spicy for the pepper. The next morning, we find Pete sitting at the breakfast table, golden rod vest, red tie, as usual, having breakfast. May says he's barely touched his eggs and knows something's bothering him. Pete apologizes. He says he isn't hungry and tells her there's nothing for her to worry about. Standing and sliding his blazer on in the next panel, he thinks, I've caused you enough worry in the past. I couldn't bear to cause you anymore. Mae suggests Pete stay home because he may be coming down with a touch of virus, but Pete says he thinks he just needs some exercise and he's going for a walk. Pete may think best that his powers are gone, but he definitely seems like he misses them. Maybe he was just rationalizing earlier because he is depressed. May watches him walk down the sidewalk in the next panel, his shoulders still hunched. She thinks, The poor boy. He can't fool me. Something is bothering him. If only I could help him, but boys are so reluctant to confide in older people. If only they'd realize we understand more than they think. I feel like that's a little fourth wall breaking there for the people reading. If you're a kid, you'd be surprised what the older folks know. I said in last week's bonus episode that the first thing you learn in sociology is that everyone, even loners, are a part of a group. So you may think nobody out there understands how you're feeling, but you'll never know until you're brave enough to let someone know how you're feeling. May Parker may not know what it's like to have and lose spider powers, but May's been on this earth a long time. She knows about the donuts and dimes, and she knows about great loss. Uncle Ben wasn't just Pete's family, after all. May, taking a seat in a rocking chair in the next panel, tries to figure it out by deduction. She says it can't be school because Pete's number one with a bullet in school. She thinks maybe his sadness is coming from the girl he's been seeing, Betty Brandt. And May, if it is, you put that doubt there trying to hook him up with that Watson girl. We ain't forget, memory long hair on me and my friend Pete. But we know you love the kid, and that's not the reason. The next panel, we're in Midtown High, high school to the world's most fashionable teens, and Flash Thompson. It's a packed classroom, but one seat is empty. A redhead in a blue long sleeve shirt wonders aloud where Peter Parker is. Bowtie agrees, stating the obvious while staring at Pete's assigned seat. And Bruni in a light brown shirt replies that it must be something important because it's the first day of school Pete's missed. I told y'all, Aunt May like my Nana. You ain't dead, you going to school. You gotta be in it to win it, she knows. But in the final panel, we see Flash, fashion on, <laughs> mediocre at best, in a green turtleneck and brown khakis, smiling with his eyes closed, and a smug look on his face, his arm draped on the back of his chair. He says, if you ask me, it's because I scared the panty waist yesterday. He's probably out transferring to another school by now. While Liz Allen, her temper as fiery as the red blouse she's wearing, shouts, Flash Thompson, I don't believe you. You couldn't! From her seat behind Flash. Peyton opens with Flash turning around in his seat to face Liz. Both his hands open like, Die well! As he continues. Sure I could, dollface. I knew you really didn't want Pewdie Parker bothering you, but you were too soft-hearted to tell him so. Flash hears what he wants to hear, because Liz tells him to leave her alone all the time, and he never does, but thinks he's some hero for bullying Pete and getting him to leave her alone when she never asked Flash to do that. Liz, shaking with rage and pointing at Flash, says he's the most brainless, brash, and conceited of all the brainless, brash, conceited boys she's ever met. Flash is now definitely in creep territory, and the class is eating this up. Bruni smiling, Bowtie, smiling, the kid in the back of the class who's always wearing Mr. Rogers sweaters is smiling. They love the drama, but Mae doesn't. And back home, worried about Peter, dear, she calls the school and gets some disturbing news from the voice on the other line. Why no, Mrs. Parker. Peter didn't come to school today. We thought he was home, with you. And May thinks Pete's never played hooky before and she's sure that this has something to do with Betty Brant. But May's all the way wrong. Pete's walk has led him to the Parker docks where his depression over losing his powers is still settling over him. Hands in pockets, head down. He thinks he has to go back to a normal everyday life so he has to quit being a freelance photographer because he won't be able to get the pics he usually does without his Spider-Man powers. In the next panel, as three men sprint past him in the opposite direction, Pete thinks he can finally get the courage to tell Betty he's Spider-Man because it won't do any harm now, while the three men scream, Hey, look, do you see what I see? Wow, I never expected to see them in real life. "Hurry! let's get a better look at them. And we see what all the commotion is about as a crowd of people surround Giant-Man in his red and blue costume. He's grown 10 feet tall and stopped in front of a car filled with a gang of criminals, the Berber gang out of line on the docks. Beside Giant Man, we see the Wasp in her shrunken form. Giant Man tells her to call the police, and Wasp replies, Okay, blue eyes, but this time, let's use your dime. You always forget to pay me back for those phone calls. Giant Man is out here sending Wasp into battles against heroes looking for him instead of going out to face them himself And tells to Astonish number 57 and making her pay for the phone calls to authorities after they finish their heroing without paying her back. The miserly master of many sizes. But as everyone clamors to get closer to the action, Pete wants none of it, thinking that he doesn't want to be near criminals anymore. But I think Pete remembers he and the Wasp are natural enemies and without his powers to give him all types of hands teamwork. Page 11 opens to a caption box. At that moment, waiting at the entrance of the Daily Bugle building, we find... May is done wondering if Betty's the cause of Pete's misery or not. She's gotten dressed, she's thrown on her green hat with the baby's breath flowers on it, and has gone down to the Daily Bugle to speak with Betty Brant herself, who, coincidentally, is exiting the building in a pink blazer, blouse, and skirt with matching clutch bag, styling on them. May calls out to her and asks if she can speak with Betty, and of course Betty says yes, she says she was just going for a cup of coffee. Meanwhile, we see subtlety will not be a part of the Sinister Six's modus operandi in the next panel. The Sandman in a purple fedora is jerking his thumb over his shoulder, and he's hunched over to talk to Electro, who is sitting behind the steering wheel of a blue car in full-on villain uniform. Sandman points out Betty, but wonders who May is, and Electro's not the guy to care. He replies, What's the difference? We'll take them both if we have to. Let's go. They're going to snatch up Betty Brandt and May Parker. And Jameson, busy man, his sleeves rolled up, his red tie loose around his neck, cigar in mouth, says he forgot to ask Betty for the frisbee file and hoping to catch her before she takes a break, raises the window to his corner office to shout down at her, but realizes immediately that something's off because Jameson is a busy man and a lot of that busy over the last two years has been dealing with supervillains. So much so that he's gotten up close and personal with a couple. In the next panel, he leans half his body out the window, sees Betty Brandt, notices Mae Parker, and then wonders who they're getting into a car with. He says he'd swear that it was the Sandman outside of the car, but there's no mistaking Electro's fully committed supervillain costume. JJ screams for them to wait and then for them to come back. But it's no use. The car pulls away from the curb with his girl Friday and his best freelancer's aunt. In the back seat minutes later dr octopus is standing in the living room of his hideout it's a nice hideout a couple of plush chairs looks like a bonsai plan on an end table stays left by the door turns to the vulture and tells him sandman is back and to get going adding that the vulture knows what he has to do without a word the vulture flies through the window just as the front door of the apartment opens betty and may are led into the swanky bachelor's pad by the sandman who tosses his hat onto the floor as he enters my man lived on the lamb for months from Maine to Mexico. Maine to Mexico. Sandman could care less about a hat hook. I'm throwing this hat wherever I want. Who gonna stop me? I'm the Sandman. Nobody gonna stop that man. Ock, always making time for the niceties, with the ladies, tells Betty he's been expecting her and asks who the charming lady with her is. Sandman says she's Peter Parker's aunt. Betty, the damsel never in distress, has had more interactions with Dr. Octopus than anyone, and after the death of her brother, she's over being afraid of 008. Holding May's hand, she asks why the doctor has brought her here. And May is oblivious. She says, a doctor? How nice. Such a charming, soft-spoken gentleman. In the next panel, Betty tries to hit May to the game, saying not to let the man's looks deceive her. But May may be a bit smitten with the world's former number one research expert in atomic science. She tells Betty that they shouldn't be prejudiced just because the man has a problem with his arms. Octopus asks them to sit and says he's going to have his associates bring them refreshments. Smooth with it. In the final panel, Pete's race to the Daily Bugle after receiving a call from J.J., who's pacing his office back and forth, his tie swinging, cigar smoke puffing from his lips. The man is worried. Pete, standing behind him, says, I got your call, Mr. Jameson. You say you think you saw my aunt get into a car with Betty Brent and Sandman and Electro? It doesn't sound possible. And J.J. replies, Okay, big brain, so it's impossible. So you tell me where your aunt and my secretary disappeared to. Like, I'm not crazy, kid. I was up close and personal with Electro. I know what I saw. I'm a busy man. I don't got time to waste being wrong. Before Pete has time to reply, the Vulture swoops outside of JJ's corner office to open page 12 with a message for the old web head. I have a message for Spider-Man. The Sins Six has captured Betty Brant. If he wants her, he'll have to come and get her. JJ, suddenly forgetting what business he's in, asks the Vulture how he's supposed to tell Spider-Man. Vulture replies, Put a notice in your paper. He's sure to read it. Tell him he must go to the Stark Electric Plant, building number four. Stark Electric Plant number four is, of course, owned by Tony Stark and Stark Industries. So this is the first of many instances that Iron Man's presence in the universe is used to add to the webhead's woes, but it's not the last. Fun fact, I don't like Iron Man in Marvel Comics at all, but that's a story for another day. Maybe one more day. Back to Pete, listening to the exchange, thinks the Sinister Six snatched up Betty because Spider-Man has proven he'll fight for her twice before in past Spidey tales and the Sinister Six are thanking the third times, the charm. Pete stares at his hands, dejected in the next panel, wondering what he can possibly do without his powers. Roger tells Jameson to make sure Spidey gets the message or he's going to hold a newspaper magnate personally responsible. And JJ still finds time to be petty, saying, I'll print it in my paper, like you asked, but I can't even swear that he knows how to read. And Jameson knows the golden liability knows how to read. The golden liability stops by at least once a week to steal a paper directly from his hands. Vulture flies off, and JJ, busy man, gets way past busy enough right away, grabbing the receiver of the phone on his desk, he starts punching numbers shouting, my next edition won't be out for hours. Maybe I can notify Spider-Man faster by contacting some of the other costume clowns in town. They probably all belong to the same club. Operator, give me the Fantastic Four. How should I know? Look in the phone book. Yeah, JJ, use that power and privilege. While Pete, looking distressed in the foreground with a hand on his forehead, thinks that the shock of being in this situation could be dangerous for me. He thinks he's got to do something But what? Then across town, in the world's most famous skyscraper headquarters, the Fantastic Four are working on one of Reed's experiments when the phone rings. Reed stretches his right arm and head past the other members of his team to answer it. Someone asks if they've seen Spider-Man, and Reed says not since yesterday, when he was on Madison Avenue hanging from a flagpole before getting annoyed. How do I know what he was doing on a flagpole? And Benji chimes in. If someone's looking for Spider-Man, try the Avengers. Those cornballs are always keeping tabs on everybody. In the final panel, word spreading quick, read FaceTimes. Yeah, Facetimes. this is comic books, baby. The future is always in the past in comic books before it becomes a present, get it? Fun fact, true story, ankle bracelets that the ex-imprisoned wear were created after a guy got the idea from the Spider-Man comic strip that ran nationally in newspapers from January 3rd, 1977 to March 23rd, 2019. So Amazing Spider-Man in real world newspapers is responsible four real world ankle bracelets that monitor human beings. I've added a link to an article of the judge who was inspired and brought the police surveillance equipment to life. Note, the villains were using the monitor in the story, not the heroes. And I don't think much has changed outside of that. Back to So, Snoops Richards FaceTimes the Avengers and speaks to none other than the living embodiment of everything right with this country, Captain America, who is standing in a Captain Morgan pose. And Cap says he's never even met the golden liability and none of the other Avengers are at the base right now, so he can't even ask them. JJ was not messing around. I don't know if he's in good with the Fantastic Four's press agent, but I assume so, because the First Family is pulling out all the stops. On page 13, the Human Torch is skyriding all around New York, even going so far as Salem-Westchester, and we get a great panel of the team dedicated to defending a world that fears and hates them, the X-Men. They're in the Danger Room training when Angel spots the skywriting. He points it out to the rest of the team, but Charles Xavier says for them to ignore it because it isn't their problem. Meanwhile, we get two panels that tell you everything you need to know about Peter Parker, Spider-Man, the Golden Rod Kid, Golden Liability, or anything else you want to call him. In the first, Pete has his Spider-Man costume laid out on his bed. Staring down at it, he's contemplating. Ditko is working because I can see the gears turning in my man Pete's head. The caption box reads, Meanwhile, as others seek him all over town, The real Spider-Man in the person of Peter Parker does some bitter soul-searching at home. Having lost my spider powers, I wouldn't stand a chance against any of my old foes, let alone six of them. But I can't sit back and do nothing, not with Betty and Aunt May in the hands of my most dangerous enemies. I've got to show myself, for their sake. He strips out of his clothes in between panels and we catch him throwing his Spidey shirt on in the next. This panel is reminiscent of his first night out as Spider-Man the Vigilante way back in Amazing Fantasy fifteen. But here, he doesn't have any powers, only grit and that great responsibility. He finishes his monologue from the last panel. And if this is to be my finish, at least I'll face it, like a man. We should all be so brave. In the next panel, Spidey, agility yawn. No way, nada, zilch, zippo. We get it, we get it. Crawls beneath the gate of Stark Industries electric plant number four, wondering what's in store for him. He enters the power plant and strides forward. His eyes on the dynamo above him, where a lone figure in green and yellow stands waiting, Spidey shouts, "Electro!" and Electro replies, "Welcome, Spider-Man. So we meet again." The camera pulls in tight on the electric engine of Ego in the next panel. He's gripping the guardrail of the catwalk with his left hand and holding a card in his right. He says the card will tell Spidey the next step on his journey to save Betty Brant, but goes on to say Spidey will have to beat him to get it. In the final panel, Electro from all panel screams, And as you can see, I selected a battle site perfectly suited for my electric powers. So, let the joust begin. Before hurling a bolt of electricity at Spidey, who barely dodges it, screaming for Electro to stop. The bolt cracks the floor beneath Spidey's feet, and he's hurled backwards, landing with his back against the wall of the plant to open page 14. A split second later, a startling realization dawns upon the amazing teenager. Spidey thinks, I'm still alive! I dodged this bolt! But nobody without superpowers can do that. That can only mean one thing. And it turns out Spidey's powers aren't his Spidey powers. It's an unwillingness to quit on himself. He rises to a crouched position, his left fingertips grazing the floor, his Spidey sense buzzing so hard it's wrapping his entire body as he thinks what we already know. He hasn't lost his powers and he's still the Amazing Spider-Man. And we got action. Electro hurls a boat at Spidey who, agility on, best you've ever seen, Uh. leaps out of the way and onto a sheer wall before hopping from that wall a split second later as another electric bolt flies towards him. Spidey tells Electro not to go away, that he'll be with the man in a moment and leaps onto a small platform, then Uh. off of it and over Uh. a banister on the catwalk in the next panel as a boat whizzes past him from behind. Spidey shouts that Electro's fast, but he's faster and pearls a giant chunk of machinery at the ego engine in the next panel. But Electro cuts the block in half easily with a bolt hot enough to melt it. He says he doesn't need speed with the power he possesses. And he's right. One bolt connects with Spidey the way Electro's pitching him right now, and the web finished. In the final panel, a beautiful panel in pink negative space, Electro, standing on his platform, a dynamo on either side of him, raises his arms screaming. And in a place like this, I can recharge myself increasing my power with each passing second. His power level over 9,000. Electro's hurling bolts that are destroying the plant. There's marble flying, there's granite in the air, there's dust, and Spidey's dodging through it all fearlessly, thinking that now that he's got his powers back, nothing can scare him, as if his fear matters. What a humble hero. Spidey backflips onto a pillar out of Electro's view in the next (laughs) panel, as Electro destroys the base of the thing with another shot of electricity. He's drawing power straight from the conduits now, and every toss of lightning is eating through scenery. Spidey, hiding upside down behind the pillar, thinks, at least I know that I've now got a fighting chance, and that's all I've ever asked of life. You hear this guy? That's New York. That's the underdog from Forest Hill, Queens. That's the Amazing Spider-Man. I tell everybody the same thing. Let me in the ground floor, and I bet you I won't leave where I started. Wonder where I got that from. Back to, and just in time for Spidey to get science-y. He finds a large spool of copper wire and purple casing and ties the wire around both his ankles, keeping it attached to the spool, thinking, there, that doesn't. By grounding myself properly, even if he connects with one of his electric bolts, the force should go harmlessly through me. The next panel, Spidey stands and aims for the main power switch across the power plant on the ground floor from his spot on the catwalk, thinking that if he can hit the switch and turn it off, he'll weaken Electro greatly. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit, before scaling a pillar towards the roof in the next panel. Electro screams that Spidey's trapped himself, and Spidey, confidence on a kid from Queens with a fighting chance, replies, that's what they all say, before I lure the boom. And the boom is coming hot and fast. Spidey leaps into the final panel where Electro wastes no time throwing a massive wave of electricity at the West shouting. But this time it's true. I've been saving my strongest boat for you, and here it is. By the way, Spidey's left eye is twitch closed. I know the electricity coursing through him doesn't tickle, but Spidey didn't get this far not being able to take his lumps. Thinking his Spidey sense, he rockets towards Mysterio and onto page 16, where he shouts, and now, you high voltage heel, I'll give you something to talk about when you wake up back in your cell. You can tell all the other cons how it feels to be on the receiving end of a knockout punch by your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And we get a beautiful splash page of Spidey, electricity coursing all around him in shades of yellow, red, and orange, cracking the high voltage heel across the jaw. And I know by the way Electro's eyes are closed and his lip curled in a painful sneer and his chin towards the ceiling, the worst, worst position you ever wanna be in, in a fight that Spidey's made sure to put a little extra behind that Sunday punch, that little lunch. Page 17 opens with Spidey grabbing a card, showing the location of his next opponent from Electro's unconscious body, both men still smoking from the electricity Electro was cooking up. Spidey thinks he better get out of here when he hears the sound of iron clanging. In the next panel, Spidey exits the plant and, clinging to a sheer wall, spots none other than Marvel's resident know-it-all, know-nothing, Iron Man. Better late than never. No. No. no! no. Yikes. Back to. Iron Man wants to know what's going on here. Spidey, spraying a web line and leaping from the sheer wall, says he doesn't have time to explain, but that Iron Man will find a reluctant guest inside near the main dynamo. Meanwhile, J. Jonah Jameson grows more worried by the minute. J.J., a look of fear on his face, is in a panel holding a receiver to his ear. The panels cut in half diagonally by phone electricity as he talks to Sue Storm on the other end of the line with Benji in the background. JJ says that if they don't find Spider-Man, there's no telling what the Sinister Six will do to him. And Sue tells him to call the police. But she's got to know, if it ain't Joe and Tomas, police have no power outside of intimidating the people they should be serving. Benji says, Tell that nut to hang up. This ain't the Missing Persons Bureau. Jameson, knowing he received useless information, hangs up the phone and exits his office, pulling the door closed behind him. He spots a couple of his editors, one with Sandy hair and a light orange shirt wearing pink lens shades, the other in a black vest and red bow tie. And Jameson starts tirading right away. I'm expecting a visitor later. See that I'm not disturbed. And I better not find out you're goofing off while I'm in there. Understand? The man came out of his office just to blow off steam on his subordinates. Sandy says, yes, sir, Mr. Jameson. But Bowtie Scowling thinks, go fry your head, you old skinflint. What the great Nipsey Hussle spit once, there's some issue you gonna think, and there's some issue you gonna say. Clearly, Bowtie doesn't have the heart to say it, so that's just another yes, sir. In the final panel, Spidey is touching down across the bay from none other than Corona Park, Queens, site of the 1964 World's Fair. The New York World's Fair ran from April 22nd to October 18th of 1964, then a year later for the same amount of time, but starting and ending a day earlier. This annual was released on October 1st of 64, So Spidey is about to get into it in the shadow of, quite possibly, the greatest event to ever occur in the borough of Queens. Page 18 opens to Spidey in the clearing in a long horizontal panel. He's standing stage left, slightly crouched. Behind him, large green bushes sit. In front of him, stage right, a brown rock juts from the earth. Off panel stage right, we hear a whistle before a large leopard appears from the bushes and another mounts the large brown rock. Spidey thinks the sound of the whistle can only mean one thing. The cat's paw is on the prowl. Spidey screams, CRAVEN, THE HUNTER! Fourth panel, in the next panel, as the self-proclaimed king of the jungle emerges from the overgrowth beside the leopard there. It's a beautiful panel, and the leopard snarling and baring its fangs, its eyes emerald green, advances towards Spidey slowly, a step in front of the hunter. Craven, his lion's mane billowing around his shoulders, is wearing a snarl matching the leopard's, as he says, So, Spider-Man, we meet again. And this time, the hunter shall get his prey with the aid of my two little pets a little spider-man's instantly surrounded as he thinks the big cats are about to attack him from all directions just before the leopard on its rocky perch leaps in the final panel spidey leans forward preparing for the attack his spidey on fire on stage left the leopard is still leaping on stage right the leopard breaks into a hungry sprint Spidey thinks he has to stop all three predators at once before thanking one of his many Silver Age catchphrases. Spider Powers, if I ever needed you, I need you now. Page 19 opens with a caption box. With every nerve tingling, every sense home to a razor sharp edge, the most amazing human fighting machine the world has ever known goes into action with dazzling speed and surging power. Not to mention agility on, best ever. We get a gorgeous splash page that shows Spidey getting all types of agile. He hits the pouncing leopard with an open palm in the chest while slamming the sprinting leopard to the floor by the head with his right hand. Craven closes in for his strike, his left fist raised, throwing the hook with his right, but Spidey's got two more limbs and leaping sideways at the same time. He huh. kicks Craven's arm away with his left foot easily screaming. Miss me, all three of you. That does it, Craven. You had your chance. With Spider-Man, there aren't any second tries. Paging Dr. Parker. Paging Dr. Parker. And on page 20, Dr. Parker gets surgical. The three big cats kicking up dust, Craven throws a left hook this time, but misses as Spidey leaps six feet straight in the air, webbing a leopard's mouth at the same time. And Craven the Lion Hunter goes cowardly immediately, thinking he needs to make his escape. Spidey quips that he hopes he isn't making the man bored, before backflipping mid-leap in the next panel, dodging a swipe from the leopard with his maw webbed shut. And Craven knows he's in too deep. He thinks, What's he up to now? I've never seen anyone move so fast, or fight so savagely. He's like a whirlwind unleashed. You gotta know y'all grabbed the two people highest on Spidey's list of responsibility. So the kid ain't come to play around, he only came to play. Spidey lands his back to Craven in the next panel on one foot screaming. You can't leave yet Gunga Dean. You still have something of mine." Gunga Dean is a poem written in 1890 by Rudyard Kipling told from the perspective of a British soldier. It tells the story of a water carrier named Gunga Dean who saves the narrator of the poem's life only to be killed by a bullet later on in the story. So I think Spidey's being ironic because Craven isn't bringing nourishment at all. Craven's trying to bring the pain and screams that if he ever gets his hands on Spidey And Spidey, backflipping off of that same left foot into the next panel, says he'll worry about that when the day comes. The day? February 31st, probably in the year of 19, never gonna happen. As Spidey, still mid-flip, reaches into the band of the startled Craven's Tiger Stripe belt and pulls the card with the address of his next opponent on it out from the man's waist. Spidey lands in the next panel and breaks into a dead sprint away from Craven's hunting party as Craven sixes his leopards on the golden liability once more. Spidey, nowhere near being caught, screams. You never give up, do you? I'll bet you're still wearing a vote for Dewey button. Thomas Dewey was the governor from my great state of New York, who is probably most famous for losing to Harry S. Truman during the 1948 presidential election and one of the greatest political upsets in history. One of the most famous political photos of all time is of Harry S. Truman on the back of a train car holding a copy of the Chicago Daily Tribune published with the headline, Dewey Defeats Truman! Truman is said to have replied as the photo was being taken. That ain't the way I heard it. The lesson there? Don't talk crap until you win. Back to. Spidey shoots a web line to the upper right corner of the final panel. And Webb swings away, brandishing his left fist, shouting that if Craven has time to kill, he should see a good barber. He lands on a rooftop to open page 21, saying he feels like a million bucks and that he never lost his powers. It was all psychosomantic, brought on by a deep-rooted feeling of guilt due to Uncle Ben's death. The kid knows math, the kid knows science, the kid knows poetry, the kid knows psychology. Young savant, always be learning. But a circle of fire erupts around Spidey's feet as he lands. No worries, he flips out of it huh. and into the next panel when none other than Sifu Hot Rod himself comes flying towards him. Johnny the Human Torch has finally caught up with the webhead. He shouts, Spider Man, hold it, you jackrabbit, I wanna talk to you. But Spidey calls him a loudmouth and tells him to beat it because he's busy. The torch shouts for Spidey to wait in the next panel, flying towards the webhead, who sprays a shot of webbing from his right hand beneath his left elbow, calling the torch a flaming freak and saying that he doesn't have time for autographs. I know it's taking everything for the torch to keep his composure right now because he screams, boy, sometimes I wish you'd really turn bad so I could let you have it without pulling any punches. Anyway, this little flame blanket ought to hold you still for a minute and sends a jet of fire at Spidey. But the golden liability is a man on a mission. He blocks the flames with web chill from both hands, saying the torch can't put the kibosh on him before leaping off the ground onto the ledge of a billboard and then onto a water tower in the next panel. As the torch says, people say he's mule-headed before telling Spidey he has something to tell him. I'm sure Spidey would believe the man on fire if Torch wasn't still throwing fire rings at him. Spidey remembers the beach. Crouching down on the water tower in the final panel, and grabbing the edge of the water tower he says okay hothead talk fast but if it's a trick i'll rip open this water tank and turn you into a pile of soggy ashes and torch his hands out in front of him like you gotta chill replies relax pea brain i heard you were in trouble everyone's looking for you they say you're up against impossible odds so i thought you could use some help and you already know torch loves a scrap with impossible odds A billion to one is just a little lunch. Gotta love that confidence. You think he's afraid? You think he's afraid? Flame on On page 22, Torch continues saying he knows they aren't the best of friends yet, but since they're both heroes, he's willing to lend a hand because that's what heroes do. Great power. You already know the rest. Spidey respects Torch wanting to help and apologizes for coming at him the way he did, but refuses Hot Stuff's help. Swinging away in the next panel, he says the fight he's in is personal, so he's gonna handle it alone. And Torch, Knowing he offered, flies away saying, okay guy, if that's how you want it, rots of rock. Meanwhile, the man who has engineered the whole complicated plan of revenge against Spider-Man watches the results so far with keen interest and mounting disappointment. And Dr. Octopus, his right hand to his chin, his left on his hip is standing in a high-tech observation room while his mechanical arms flip switches and pull levers. He has been watching Spidey the whole time and says his crew has to be more careful going forward before heading back out into the plush living room of his hideout where Betty and May are sitting. In his right hand now, he's holding a saucer with a teacup on it while R2 stretches out in front of him, refilling the coffee in May's pink mug and L2 stretches forward holding a tray of Danish pastries. Ox says he's sorry he's been such a poor host and that he hopes the ladies enjoy the coffee and pastries. May is shocked by the arms but enjoys how polite 008 is saying, Such a charming gentleman. It's a pleasure to meet someone with such good manners nowadays. While Betty stares in wide-eyed disbelief like, Sheesh, May. All it takes is kindness. We're being held against our will. Meanwhile, Spidey just web-swung through a high window into a room filled with three X-Men. Angel, Beast, and Cyclops. Angel points Spidey out. Cyclops bolts his fist. Beast leaps from the floor where he's sitting, and Spidey thinks this doesn't make sense. The X-Men are heroes. Why would his third address be here? In the final panel, his back to us and arms raised, he says... Hold it, you guys. Wait, it's a mistake. I must have come to the wrong address. Look out. But Sykes already opened up his visor, sending his optic blast of concussive force at Spidey while Beast and Angel charge the webhead. Spidey manages to get out a spray of useless webbing before they barrel down on him. And I think the end of page 22 is the perfect spot to take a seventh inning stretch. I'm going to play this theme music. You're going to do whatever you need to to get your heart back in rhythm. We'll be right back. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. 23 opens with Spider Man leaping out of the way of a blast from Cyclops' eyes and lunging at Beast, striking the X-Men's most agile member on the back of the head with a right as he does. And the Beast explodes on impact, crumpling to the floor in a mass of metal and blue and yellow. Spidey realizes that these aren't the X-Men at all, but highly developed robots, the Android X-Men. Realizing this, Spidey doesn't hold back. Upside down in the next panel, he hits Angel so hard the Android's wings come off and the Android crumples lifeless to the floor. But Android Cyclops isn't falling so easy. In the next panel, we get a great shot of the Android's head whipping in five different directions, spraying his concussive (laughs) eye beams at Spidey as we look on from behind. Spidey proves that he's the best there is at what he does, what he does, agility. You should huh. know the answer is agility. And he dodges every blast before webbing up the android's feet on a handstand in the next panel, yanking them from beneath him. DX-men all downed, small fire springing up. Spidey leaps towards a seemingly metal wall in the next panel. His Spidey sense ablaze as he thinks, whoever my real enemy is, he's behind this camouflage wall. I better attack him before he can try something else. In the final panel, Mysterio, behind the glass in the foreground at his control panel, pushing different buttons, sees the amazing Spider-Man, Both fists raised, leaping towards the two-way glass he's behind, screaming, Mysterio, of course, only you have the technical know-how to design such a deadly, deceptive, mechanical device. Anger and alliteration flying towards the fishbowl-headed master of Mysterious. Mysterio says if Spidey were anyone else, he'd be stopped and says the golden liability's luck is unbelievable. But Spidey doesn't have great luck, just grit and an overwhelming sense of responsibility. He bursts through the glass and onto page 24, another beautiful splash page that sees him connecting with Bulldome's head screaming. Luck you call it? Mister you don't know what half of it. I'm the original hard luck kid. The hard luck kid bringing 10 times more action than the last time I shouted 10 times more action. It's a gorgeous panel. The eyes on Mysterio's cape look horrified. He falls backwards his boots kicking up their signature blue smoke. Spidey says he's gonna play Mysterio's fishbowl like a drum if the man doesn't give him that card with the address on it. On page 25, Spidey grabs the card, but he also catches a left cross from Mysterio, who gloats, saying, you don't think Mysterio could be defeated so easily. As smoke fills the room. Poor Mysterio. All that special effects know-how and still using the same old tricks. Spidey leaps headfirst into the smoke in the next panel, saying, Nice try. But his Spidey sense is at peak levels today and the smoke won't save him. And he's right! In the next panel, Spidey throws a left uppercut into the smoke. We only see his hand, but judging from the action lines and the thick of the smoke, he's put Mysterio down. Spidey comes out of the smoke on the next panel, his Spidey sense still tingling, looking for the card with the next address on it and gives a shout of fear. The card has landed on one of the spots Android Cyclops blasted trying to hit the elusive Spider-Man and is on fire. Quick note. For the listeners who are also fans of the X-Men, I know, I know, Sykes beams are concussive force, not some sort of energy beams that start fires. I'm gonna no-prize this and say the concussive force broke through the floor paneling and hit some switches and wires, and that sparked the fire. Either way, Spidey's gotta work quick if he wants to get the address, and he does. He sprays liquid webbing over the burning address card in the next panel, dousing the fire and lifts it from the floor in the following, saying, Now, when I peel away the paper, the imprint of the writing may somehow have been transferred onto my webbing. He's silly puttying this in the way that kids used to take a piece of silly putty, put it on a newspaper, and pull it back and the ink would come off? That's what he's doing with this webbing and this address card. Spidey getting sciencey. It's a great panel. We get Spidey's left hand holding the card and his right pointer finger at its corner. The ink on the card is gone, but there's an imprint of the address barely visible. In the final panel, Spidey gets spider i I've got to concentrate harder than ever before. It's up to my Spider-Sense to detect the message that was written here before every last trace of it fades away. How in the- it's comic books. Let it go and come on. On 26th, we're back outside of the window of JJ's office as he paces back and forth inside with his hands behind his back. He's wondering what in Sam Hill happened to Spidey, if Spidey got his message, and how can he know? when a small black spider descends outside of his window. J.J. approaches the spider in the next panel thinking, Hmm, if Ant-Man can talk to ants, then why shouldn't Spider-Man? I wonder. He raises the window and gets <laughs> right to business with the spider. Who are you? Did Spider-Man send you? Don't just hang there. Give me the message. Outside of the office, blue Bowtie, tie, holding his hand up to a brunette woman in a green blouse so she doesn't enter the office, stares at Jameson over his shoulder saying, Is Old Skin Flint talking to that spider? Or am I going nuts? And Bruny replies, If he is, it's not you who's going nuts. While JJ, oblivious to us all watching him unravel, continues his conversation with the spider. Come on, I haven't got all day. Where's Spider-Man? Busy man that, JJ. And if you're dangling outside of his window on a web doing nothing, you might not be busy enough. But now, our scene changes once again as Spider-Man having analyzed the message on his last card, reaches his next destination. Spidey swings onto the scene, the scene, a walled-in court with a goldenrod floor and block wall surrounding the floor on both sides. Spidey wonders which of his ex-villains is going to meet him here. Spidey lands on the next panel and spots the card with the next address on a small stick towards the back of the courtyard. He glances around, sees no one, and walks over a sandy patch of dirt towards the address thinking that whoever he was supposed to be facing probably got cold feet. But that dirt was more than meets the eye. In fact, it's none other than Flint, two-gun Marco himself. None other than the Sandman. Spidey screams he should have known as Sandman, reconstituting his form from the waist up as he's waited a long time for this moment. In the final panel, a fist clenched, his waves on perpetual swim, sand from the waist down. He says, so if you want that card, come and get it. All you have to do is get past me. In Spidey, both fists clenched, knowing the rules ain't changed, replies, you Know something, Buttercup? I plan on just doing that little thing. That little thing? Another splash page to open page 27. My brush, please. Sandman has swelled up, as he often does, past his six-foot-one frame, and every limb of him is sand. Sandman's left arm is one large sand tentacle wrapping around the cockback right wrist of the webhead. Sandman's right hand is all sand and massive, with his pointer and middle fingers raining sand down on Spidey's shoulder. Three quarters of him facing us on stage right. Spidey's left knee is bent and up off the floor, punching through Sandman's left thigh, which is all sand. His weight centered on his right foot. Spidey's throwing a vicious left foot that gives a loud whap that strikes two gun across the jaw. It's a gorgeous splash page and Spidey is talking his smack. You're hoping me to beat you because you're such a show off Sandman. If you had remained in your Sandy form, I wouldn't have been able to womp you with all my spider strength like this but no, you have to take form in front of my eyes to make a dramatic appearance okay so you impressed me I love this page the look of shock on the Sandman's face like holy crap the bugs not holding back it's beautiful to look at Ditko always working Spidey punches through the Sandman to open page 28 grabbing the card with the address on it but as soon as he does a pink diamond face light goes off on the wall behind him and iron paneling rises from the floor and the wall above him. In the space between panels, the walls become an ironclad cell, and Spidey is now trapped inside the prison with the Sandman, who wastes no time in asking if Spidey still feels like gloating. Spidey leaps sideways in the next panel, narrowly avoiding the Sandman's arms, now with the anvils at the end racing towards him. The left arm crashes above Spidey's head, the right between the webhead's legs as Sandman decides to gloat. I purposely allowed you to get to know to let you think you'd won. In the next panel, he continues his back to us, ramming another anvil arm into the wall behind Spidey's head. And now, no matter how you try to dodge my blows, it's only a matter of time before I connect with you. You can't keep ducking forever. But then, surprisingly, the Sandman begins to slump forward, weakening, as though on the verge of collapse. Sandman begins to wither right before Spidey's eyes as he says he can't breathe and needs air. Spidey leaping (laughs) over the crumpling Sandman thinks he realizes what happened and starts monologuing as he picks the lock of the iron cell. He needs a normal amount of air to breathe, but my spider strength allows me to hold my breath longer. All that power and no breath control, how sad. And by this time, J. Jonah Jameson has realized that spiders can't or won't talk, and so, he's gone back to pacing. He hopes nobody saw him talking to that spider. We did, J.J., we did. And strolling through his offices, he wonders aloud why all the desks are covered in newspapers from his competitors. In the next panel, a man in a purple bow tie and light blue button-up says it's the only way they could learn what was happening with Spider-Man. JJ, gripping a rival paper, his eyes wide, mouth open, the cigar falling from his lips, snaps. You blithering numbskull, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't we print an extra two? In the next panel, his back to us, he throws the paper into the air as Bowtie reminds JJ that he said he didn't want to be disturbed, and they couldn't go to presses without JJ say so. JJ screams that everybody in town has scooped him on his own story. Meanwhile, at Doc Ock's apartment base, 008 is watching Spider-Man's progress through his Sinister Six, and with four defeated and only the Vulture standing between Spidey and he, he says he's got to make some new plans in case the Webhead actually reaches him. Octopus hasn't even bothered to make any plans for himself. He is still, despite two losses and a draw to the Webhead underestimating the golden liability. In the next panel, Betty, staring towards the back room with a look of fear on her face, hugging her own shoulders, tells May she's so, so sorry that the woman's been involved in all this. But May is thoroughly enjoying herself. Her eyes closed, she holds her coffee mug with her pinky out like Patrick's star. And smiling, she says, oh, that's all right, dear. I just hope that Peter isn't too worried about me. The dear boy is so nervous and high strung. Nervous? Not at all. High-strung? Maybe, because we see the Golden Liability high above the city climbing a raised platform only wide enough for him to stand on in the next panel as none other than Lincoln O. Vulture himself flies down beating his wings to meet our hero. He tells Spider-Man that he's last on the Webheads list and if Spidey wants to find out where Betty Brant is they're gonna fight the Vulture's way. Spidey stands on the platform in the final panel as the Vulture makes his demands. Only I can tell you where to find Betty Brand. Each time we fought in the past, you defeated me with your accursed web. If you want another chance, you must remove your webbing device or else I'll simply fly off. Man wants Spidey to face him in the air with no way to maneuver. This is a handicap. This is a genius move, a genius play by one Lincoln Vulture. If this don't work, there won't be the shooters. Page 30 opens to Spidey removing his web shooters in a goldenrod negative space, wondering how he's gonna defeat a flying villain without his webbing. But loving a challenge, he thinks, but this is as good a time as any to dream up a way. Vulture screams, good. And now, I'll show you what the Vulture can do against a spider without his web. From off panel, and makes his move immediately. In the next panel, he sprays oil from a gas can in his hand beneath Spidey's feet, grinning the whole time. Then beats his wings furiously in the panel following, saying that the violent air pressure will force Spidey off the ledge. And he's right! Spidey falls backwards off the small platform and onto the next, grabbing its base with the tips of his fingers, no problem. (laughs) But Vulture's not done. In the final panel, he swoops down to meet our hero and in shades of Montana, pulls a lasso from I don't know where and flings the Honda at the web head, wrapping it around his left ankle. The Vulture tries to pull Spidey from the wall to open page 31 in a long, gorgeous horizontal panel, but Spidey is on the same type of time the Vulture is. His legs splayed in front of him, he thinks he has to hurl himself at Lincoln all to get as close as possible. In the next panel, Spidey springs from the wall, grabbing the rope with his left hand, while at the same time, Pulling the honda from his ankle with his right spidey twirls the honda in the following panel as the vulture from off panel It's a lot of panel work i know let's do it it's too dim with it to realize all he has to do is let the rope go and spidey could be finished instead he holds it long enough for spidey to twirl the honda himself and turntables baby those turntables spidey falling with his back to the earth in the next panel Tosses the lasso at Vulture. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit. And now, I'm starting to believe Montana ain't that impressive because anybody holding a lasso in the 616 seems to be able to get an ankle loop on the toss. In the final panel, Spidey jerks Vulture towards the earth and using the momentum, rises above and behind the flying villain, screaming, Hey, Vulture boy, how about that? If the Spider-Man business ever gets slow, I'll try for a job acting in TV westerns before leaping onto the Vulture's back in the next page in another splash panel. I'm not a fan of this one though, I gotta say. I love the expression on Vulture's wrinkled face and his arms and the city below is gorgeous, but his shoulder blades are jutting out weirdly and his right leg is at an odd broken angle. It's bizarre after 31 pages of timeless Ditko, but everybody gets one. Either way, Spidey ain't worried about my thoughts on the matter. He's got an address to get. He screams. And now, you wing-flapping weasel, I'm gonna clip your pin feathers for you. Unless you tell me where to find Betty Brant, and I mean right now, here. And Vulture knows he's licked, he won't fight. He says, sure, I'll tell you. You'll never be able to leave the place alive anyway. And if you do, we'll meet again, Spider-Man. I'll see to that. This Vulture's been alive a long time. Vulture knows there's always another day. Vulture always takes his loss on the chin saying, I'll get you next time, Spider-Man. Wagging a finger. May be true, Vulture, but you won't get him today. Spidey, riding the Vulture like a flying horse to open page 33, says that's fine with him, that our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is always available for weddings, bar mitzvahs, and anywhere else Vulture wants to meet up again to scrap, before forcing the winged villain to fly him back to his web shooters. Exactly 60 seconds later. Spidey, his shooter's back on his wrist, swings away from the Vulture, who he leaves webbed up on a flagpole, telling him to sit tight while Spidey goes bye-bye. But the vulture isn't the only one whose thoughts are unprintable at that moment. Jameson is at his desk, going through it. Receiver in his left hand, his right massaging both his temples. The bad news keeps on coming. A bruny woman in a dark brown sweater and blue skirt, flanked by two gray-haired men wearing all sorts of clashing colors, steps into the room saying the bucle hasn't sold a paper in the past hour. Bat newsy must be downstairs, stressed. But it's nothing compared to J.J. In response to the Daily Bugle not done miffling, he says, Naturally, all the other papers have come out with Spider-Man extras, except us. Get out of here. Let me suffer in peace. We jump across town again, back to the hideout of Dr. Octopus, where Octopus, realizing there's nothing standing between him and the golden liability, takes his leave of Betty Brandon May Parker, saying he's expecting another visitor to arrive. When Betty asks what about them, Ock replies, don't worry, Miss Brant, I'll be back. And I'm sure a chill runs up Betty's spine because we get a beautiful panel of her up close, her left hand on her cheek, her pinky hovering near her lips, as she asks May in the background, still smiling, what the woman thinks Octopus meant by that. May, halfway smitten with 008, says she doesn't know, but the man has the most charming manners and is so well-spoken. I'm starting to think May may not be the best judge of character. The devil's well-spoken too, May. The devil is well-spoken too. In the final panel, standing in the shadow of a tree with his back to us, just a few hundred yards away, we see none other than the golden liability standing outside of a castle with red-shingled roofing on its parapets and buttresses. The closest thing I could find to a castle outside of Belvedere and Central Park in New York is the Vanderbilt mansion on the Eagle's Nest estate on Long Island. So Spidey's on the affluent side of Queens gearing up for his final showdown. He checks his equipment, makes sure the webbing and his shooters are full and continues his rescue mission. He leaps onto the sheer wall of a castle spire to open 34, <laughs> scaling easily, saying he hopes it's not considered impolite not to use the front door. He gets inside the castle in the next panel, crawling along the ceiling, keeping his spider sense tuned for Betty and May. He says as soon as he's close, his trusty spider sense will let him know. But Spidey spots Otto Octavius before he finds his girl and on. Clinging to a sheer wall in the next panel, he watches as an unarmed, literally, Octavius's arms aren't attached to him except for his two fleshies, walks past a large fireplace and towards a door. Descending behind Octavius upside down in the next panel, Spidey shouts, Hi Doc, long time no see! Causing Octavius to turn and shout that he's been expecting the webhead. Spidey flips right side up and says, yeah, I bet, before asking where Betty Grant and Mrs. Parker are. Octavius, turning to face Spidey, thinks he's got to keep the webhead talking while he springs his trap. So Octavius plays dumb. He asks, What would it make you think I've seen them? Who is Mrs. Parker anyway? Man is dressed head to foot in royal purple. One of the two primary colors for villains. In a castle that's not his. at an address Spidey received after running through a gauntlet of super villains. And his way of stalling is playing stupid. Octavius is different. This is hilarious to me. Like, Spider-Man, fancy meeting you here. What? Sinister Six, and you say you took on Five already? No way. I don't know anything about those guys. I'm just here so I won't be sued. In the final panel, like the narrator always says, Spider-Man isn't so dumb. Hanging by his left hand effortlessly from his web line, he replies, she's the aunt of a teenager who knows Betty. She's got nothing to do with you. Why did you bring her here? And don't pull that innocent routine on me. And Ak from Off Panel, Says he wouldn't dream of it, while unbeknownst to Spidey, 00's four mechanical arms creep towards him menacingly. Page 35 opens with action as the Golden Liability Spider sense goes off in a long horizontal, causing him to grab one of the metal arms racing towards him. But Spidey was a little slow. That best ever agility has been put through its paces, and he's caught around the right wrist by another arm. Octopus, never willing to throw away his shot, rushes forward screaming that Spidey never suspected he could control his arms mentally and calling the webhead a meddlesome juvenile. Lifted off the floor by the mechanical arms, Spidey is free wreck for Octavius, who clubs him on the shoulder in the next panel. But Otto's just the guy with great New York fashion. Without his mechanical arms, and despite screaming that Spidey's no match for him as he throws his punch, the lie detector test proves that's a lie immediately. As Spider-Man throws a left of his own in the next panel, stretched out above the floor, that jerks Octopus's head back and sends the mad doctor reeling. Spidey's screaming, tell me something, Ock. Are you trying to defeat me by talking me to death? The whole time. Like, if you came to talk, you got the wrong kid, kid, because there's only one play in the book of golden liabilities, and it's only for the hands team fist. Swing him if you got him. Spidey's punch breaks Octavius's concentration and 008's arms fall to the ground. Releasing Spider-Man as the villain holds his face with stars dancing around his eyes. But before Spidey can make a move towards him, he has to leap from his spot in the final panel as a metal arm slams Pinter first into the floor. Spidey races up a ventilation shaft to avoid the arms to open page 36 and seeing the arms turn to return to Octavius, decides to continue his hunt for Betty and May. Meanwhile, Octopus, his middle arm's back on his torso, is standing in front of his security machine as they turn switches and press buttons. Oct is watching Spider-Man on the machine and says there's no reason to chase the webhead around. He's going to watch and strike when Spidey's most vulnerable. Translation? Spidey just knocked the crap out of him and he's trying to recover. Those spots are still dancing in front of his eyes. His middle arms might even be dizzy. Back to. Spidey, back on the floor in another area of the castle, walks along the hallway slowly Thinking, this place has more twists and turns than a corkscrew. My spider sense is tingling, but I don't see anything wrong yet. But suddenly, a trapdoor opens beneath Spider-Man's feet, and a powerful blast of air from the ceiling forces him down before he can leap to safety. And Spidey tumbles through the trapdoor screaming, Uh-oh, look out below! He splashes into a pool of water, thinking this would make an amazing movie serial with all these cliffhangers, because there's a new one every minute. In the final panel, he ain't lying! Spidey's landed in the giant spherical vat of water, and he swims towards the edge to stare at Dr. Octopus, as we see Doc Ock getting suited and booted. He's stripped out of his purple jumpsuit, Timberlands, and Kanye shades, and into a purple diving wetsuit. Sliding a red diver's mask over his eyes as his mechanical arms equip him with an aqualung, he screams, And now, you insufferable nuisance, I'm gonna defeat you in a manner most befitting my name. I shall join you in that giant fistbowl and attack you just as a real octopus would. The man- is going full on octopus. And on 37, oof, do we reap the reward of his madness? This is most certainly a beautiful splash page. And in this one, we see Octopus in the background in his diver's gear, Bubble spring behind him as he swims towards Spidey from the top of the giant fishbowl. His arms racing towards the webhead, he screams, If you've any last words to utter, Spider Man, save them now. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot you can't hear me through my air mask. What a pity. I neglected to furnish one for you. The man is quipping. Spidey, the metal one's clutched in his hand, air bubbles streaming from his mouth, thinks that this jam is going to make all the others look like picnics in comparison. Well, you can't have a picnic without jam, so my money's still on Spidey. On 38, Spidey proves his agility is still best ever, even underwater. As we get a great panel of him swimming right in front of us, dodging Ox arms and from the trail of water streaming behind him, he swam above R2, beneath R1, and in a tight squeeze avoided the L's altogether, the whole time thinking, but I mustn't panic. Can't afford to lose. It's not just my life. I have Betty and Aunt May to think of. I've got to avoid those arms of his. Courage on the fire and calm in the chaos. The amazing Spider-Man, and he is working right now. Spidey leaps out of the water, thinking he has to come up to breathe, and Ock doesn't, so he has the advantage there, but dives back into the water fearlessly. Spidey can hold his breath for four minutes. He's got plenty of time, but not space. And in a large fist bowl, Ox's arms take up a lot of it. He grabs Spidey around the ankle and begins pulling the web head towards him in the water from off panel by a metal arm. Spidey, his shoulders and head scraping against the bottom of the tank as Ock pulls him towards him, thinks what we know, that he can hold his breath longer than any other human being, but not forever. So in a last ditch effort to free himself, Spidey gets spidery. He dumps every last ounce of webbing in his wrist into the pool at once. Oxmetal arms fight to free themselves. Have you ever seen a fly in a spider's web? Yeah? Same rules apply. The more they struggle, the more tangled up they become. Spidey swims towards the edge of the bowl in the final panel, knowing that if he stays out of the way, Octopus is going to finish himself off. 39 opens to a caption box. Finally! And we see the most glamorous superhero in the whole world outside of the tank as Dr. Octopus, a tangle of webbing, arms, and defeat, feet, are at the feet of Spidey, and Spidey explains to Dr. Octopus why the Sinister Six lost. You and my other little sparring partners are to be real proud of yourselves. You practically handed me my victories on a silver platter. If you each hadn't been so anxious to get the credit for beating me alone and teamed up against me, you might have had a chance. And he's absolutely right. Every one of them swore they could take Spidey one-on-one. You know what group actually did manage to drop Spidey and get their rocks off? The Enforcers. You know why? Because they don't put their ego before the mission. Those three men have no powers, and they got a group jump on on the webhead. It was amazing. Shout out to the Enforcers, the most sturdy gang in all of the Marvel Universe. Actually managed to drop the webhead. I still can't believe it. That's in Just Deserts Here on me and my friend Pete. The lesson here is simple. If you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, core the enforcers, they'll get you there. Spidey leaves Ock webbed up outside of the tank and using his Spidey sense searches the castle for the loves in his life. He finds them after a bit in the next panel and forces the door open, asking the ladies if they're okay. Betty is ecstatic, the harrowing journey making her forget about her wish of never seeing the webhead again. She says, Spider Man, oh, thank heavens. That horrible Dr. Octopus kept saying you didn't have a chance. While Aunt May, for the first time all day, is in shock and afraid. Her hand to her mouth, she goes on a May Parker version of a tirade, shouting, So that Spider-Man? What a perfectly ghastly outfit. He's so villainous looking. Not at all as pleasant as that well-mannered Dr. Octopus. I'm sure Dr. Octopus would never have entered that way without knocking. See how much you can get away with with the niceties? Spidey, grabbing the door, makes leave in the next panel saying he's sent for the police and they should be here any moment. Betty, all smiles with a hand on the woman's shoulder, says to May that they're safe, as May says she doesn't understand any of what's happening. In the final panel, the three head to the entrance of the castle where a red squad car is waiting. May wonders if it's rude to leave without saying goodbye, as Betty thinks that she'd love to know who's under that spidey mask. Oh, you know, Betty, but you don't know. That's your Tog, or your Shutterbug, or your Shutternutter. Wait, what? That's British, same thing. Stay on this side of the pond. Fine. That's your guy, Peter Parker. And with a dash of best ever agility, he (laughs) leaps away from the scene. Spidey races home knowing he has to beat May and Betty there so they don't suspect anything, and is racing outside of the house in his goldenrod vest and SJB pants to meet them in the next panel as they exit the police car they drove up in. Pete shouts he was so worried, but both ladies say they're fine. May says she met an interesting man. I guess she's not wrong. In the next panel, Pete says, you mean you're not all shook up or anything? And May scolds him about using slang but she really does seem fine. Betty says May is a very unusual woman. May ain't never scared. I respect that. I'm starting to wonder what she and Ben got into as youngsters to make her so fearless now. In the next panel, they enter the house, May leading. And she says that she'll admit she was worried about Pete because he gets nervous being in the house alone. Pete reminds May that he was five years old when he felt that way, as Betty, smiling, says she needs to get back to work because Jameson must be wondering about her. But May's not hearing it. She's already heading towards the kitchen off panel in the next, as she says, Nonsense, dear. I'll get some cookies and milk, and we'll all sit down for a few minutes, and... Oh! Oh, heavens! And Pete, neuroses, right away, whips his head around, saying the shock of the day's events must be hitting her right now. He and Betty race into the den in the final panel to find May at the television set scowling. The only shock in her life right now is the realization that they missed the Beverly Hillbillies, and she's been waiting all week. I always laugh at the success of that show, but I can laugh all I want. It was the bee's knees when it was released in 1962 and the number one show on air for its first two seasons and lived in the top 20 for eight of its nine. I'd say it was only so successful because of the times, but it still has 16 of its episodes on the list of most watched television episodes of all time. That's a hell of a feat because there were a lot less people and a lot less television sets from 1962 to 1971 when it was aired. The show received seven Emmy nominations over its 274 episode run, but no wins. Most critics found the show appalling, but that's the thing about critics. They can say what they want, but they speak for themselves alone. The show was beloved because of its premise. A country bumpkin family from the Ozarks strikes oil and moves to Beverly Hills. We didn't watch it in my house growing up, and outside of Jed Clampett and the research I did to keep up with the history laced through these comics, I'll probably never speak of it again, but number one is number one, and critics, myself, and whoever else doesn't vibe with it, that isn't enough to make it number two. Plus, if Mae is bumping with it, probably worth a watch. Mae's got taste, despite not being a good judge of character. Back to. So Betty asked if that's what Mae was upset about, and Pete relieved says, know something, on Mae? In case I forget to tell you, you're the emblem loving Greatest. And Mae snaps to open page 41, scowling and pointing a finger at her nephew, she says, Peter Parker, what am I gonna do with you? There you go, using that awful sling again. And Pete apologizes, saying he'll try to be more careful while wondering how many other superheroes have to toe the mark, which is blowing my mind right now that I never put toe the line with the mark from On Your Mark, get set, go. Learn something new every day. Go back to go forward, I always say, back to. Mate eases up in the next panel, saying she shouldn't pick on Pete because she's just happy to see him so happy again and explains that that was the reason she went to see Betty. You already know Pete's thinking he's never going to frown around May again. He throws his arm over his two best gals' shoulders, saying that everything's fine now, and after they have those cookies, he's gonna take Betty back to her office. Betty smiles at him, asking Pete if anyone ever told him that his nose wrinkles when he smiles, and May, smiling herself, says she thought she was the only one who noticed. Feel good feelings all around, you love to see it. But before we draw the final curtain on our sparkling little saga, let's take one last look at J. Jonah Jameson who has known happier days. None other than Sifu Hot Rod himself, one Johnny the Human Torch, has flown up to the window of J.J.'s corner office and he gets right to business. He knows J.J.'s a busy man and he asks, heard from Spider-Man Mr. Jameson, I wanna congratulate him for beating the sentence to six. And J.J., his Reed Richards hair a tousled mess, his shirt wrinkled, a cup of coffee in his hand, I'm sure to stink of defeat dripping from him, balls a fist and let's fly. Get out of here! You costume freak should be outlawed! Ever since Spider-Man entered my life, even my ulcers have ulcers. And if JJ stinks of defeat, the cell housing the Sinister Six at One Police Plaza must be downright ripe. In the presence of a guard on duty, with Spidey outside of their barred window watching them, his hands on his hips, golden lights shining around him, the six sit on the floor of the cell holding court. Octopus says, Next time we tackle Spider-Man, we'll do it this way. But nobody's trying to hear it. Electro, unmasked, says, Ah, shut up. We're through taking orders from you. Sandman, the strongest and probably only sitting here because Spidey's just outside the window, sits with his legs crossed, his back to us and his head down, and he says, I still don't know how it happened. I thought he was beaten until... While the Vulture, more relaxed than any of them, he's old hat at this being locked up business after all, lays like Michael Jackson on his thriller cover, and he has the last word. Talk, talk, talk. The least they could do is give us each a private sale. Beneath them, we get a caption box. And that's that. Just between us, we're glad we have a full year till our next Spidey annual. It'll take us that long to rest up from doing this one. The rest of the annual are splash pages of gorgeous art by Steve Ditko showing Spidey's rogue gallery, starting with the burglar who took Uncle Ben's life, and including every villain who Spidey's fought except that rogue space capsule. But we're watching you, space capsule. Next, we get a section called The Secrets of Spider-Man that recounts his origin story, brings him forth behind only the Hulk, the Thing, and Thor as strongest in the MCU. This page also shows off his ability to cling to walls, his leaping ability, a city block in one bound or three stories straight up, his balance and amazing agility on Best Ever as he balances on the pointer finger of his right hand above the city on a thin strand of webbing, and then a full page spread of Spidey putting his acrobatics to work. Next, we see It Sciency showing off the webbing, the shooters he houses them in, and his utility belt. A half-inch thick strand, to keep the thing a prisoner for life, it's 90% fireproof, so Torchy would have to turn up the heat to escape it, and almost as elastic as Mr. Fantastic. And of course, Sue is nowhere to be found. Shameful. We get a page dedicated to his Spidey sense, which is described like radar, and it's said that only Daredevil himself, the man without fear, has a more highly developed radar than Spider-Man. We get a couple of panels explaining why the lines are made above Spider-Man's head for his Spidey sense in comics, and for his half-man, half-amazing Pete Rock look. And Stan and Steve keep it simple. Those simple actions, the half man, half amazing, the Spidey sense line, add drama. And that's all this is about at the end. Great stories packed chock full of drama. The next page gives us his mask, explaining that his eyes are hidden behind the mirrored lenses and the lenses protect him from dust, dirt and the glare of the sun. Spidey's costume is next. The mask muffles his voice. He rocks three quarter length sleeves on his shirt so he can hide it beneath his street clothes. He designed his web shooters to become more compact so that they fit on his belt when he's not swip swipping. SNS thought of everything. We get a page of the heel and the heartthrob, which is of course what I'll be calling JJ and Betty Brant going forward. Then a page of the most fashionable high school in the U.S., Midtown High. Everyone's here from Liz and Flash to Bruni, Bowtie, Mr. Warren, and Big Brass Davis, while Pete studies in the corner, ignoring Flash flexing in the middle of the room. Next, we see Pete's home with May, a two-story in Forest Hills. May's knitting in a pip, and Spidey's web swinging onto the roof. The diagram lets us know Midtown High is three blocks west. May lets us know she wishes Pete wasn't so delicate. The next page, we get a pin of Spidey vs. the quarrelsome quartet and the incredible Hulk. It's gorgeous. And finally, we get a comic story of how SNS come up with their Spidey stories that begins with Lee waking up in the dead of night and ends with Lee waking in the dead of night. And we're out what a tale what a tale of course i've already seen spider-man no way home if you have and you've heard this story you tell me who did it better i love them both i feel blessed to live in a time where i get to experience them both and that's the main episode this week and that's true that's the main episode but there is more me and my friend pete available for your listening pleasure right now if you support this show on patreon.com hspp patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through Kick-Ass Number 2 by two of comics' living legends, Mark Millar and John Romita Jr. for Icon Comics. All Dave Lazuski ever wanted, like most of us, was to be a superhero. Unlike most of us, Dave did something about it. And we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join me. Head over to Patreon.com HSPP. And sign up to the key keeper or high council tiers now to learn the story of Dave Lazuski on a hero's journey whose lesson may just be, be careful what you wish for. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a special thanks to the home team, the right minders, the big three, the key keepers and the high council. This podcast is completely listener supported and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know the rest, you know? Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.